The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, I invite your attention this morning to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and that is page 844 of the Blue Pew Bible. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33 this morning. The title of the message this morning is the cross. Your view of the cross is it worldly or is it godly? And as you're turning there, I just want to invite you out as well. Uh, we don't have an official event, but many of you who know uh, our our backyard, our front yard, uh, is a good watching spot for fireworks. So this uh, Wednesday night at 10 o'clock, you're welcome to join those of us who will be here at that time to uh, watch the world's of fun uh, fireworks across the way. You're more than welcome to do that as we do. Uh, we'll also be sharing some uh, gospel track, church invites that night. If you're interested, f- find me or Derek McMurdy. I'll be glad to help you with that. Well, as you find your way there, it is baseball season, and sad to say our baseball team is pretty terrible this year. Uh, I don't think that uh, means anything to anyone. We won a championship. That's still good three years ago, so we're good for another uh, 27 years So, as life goes on. But there's a story that goes on about a, a, a umpire who was – uh, umping the game as it goes, and a lady was just yelling at him the whole game. I mean, yelling to the point of being annoying. I'm sure you've never done that with an umpire at a Little League game or a Major League game. But finally, the ump stopped the game and said, time out, and looked at the lady and said, lady, if I were your wife, I would feed myself poison. Ooh, he might throw himself out of the game at this point, right? And this was all she he could take, and glaring back, he shouted, and if I were your, and he sa- she said, and if I were your husband, I would take it just like that. Do you get what's going on there? You see that. Because sometimes that's how we feel. Because we feel like if we got the right way and the right time and the right people, then life would just be good. Well, friends, that is exactly where the disciples are this morning as we continue through the book of Mark. What you think and believe about something affects how you process and handle that very thing. How you view Jesus impacts how you serve and live out Jesus. Just like how that lady viewed the ump impacted how she viewed that game. Well, if you're like any number of skeptics today, you will have many things to say about Jesus. How about Robert Funk, who said he's a member of the Jesus Seminar, which it's, it's a misnomer as it is. But he says that Jesus said a lot of good things, and we should admire him. But boy, we should never worship him. Or how about Susan Haskins, who said Jesus was the greatest feminist ever to walk on the face of the earth, and therefore everything he did for females should only be done for females, end quote. Wow. Or what about Bart Ehrman, the great, or the great, the, uh, the out in North Carolina, Duke Divinity School. He said that Jesus was just a prophet who expected the end of the world, but we can conclude he was wrong because he didn't rise from the dead. His predictions were wrong, and at least in part, he only said a few true things. Wow. And by the way, he went to a conservative Southern Baptist seminary before he went on to become a now false teacher. Friends, how you view something impacts how you view everything else. Do you agree with that? 
And as you view Jesus, as these disciples are going to see another thing about Jesus, it's going to impact everything they believe. Do you remember back as we studied the 12 apostles last summer as we've been working our way through Mark that in John chapter 1 and verse 46, as Adam will put up on the screen, it was said of Jesus, Nathaniel said this. He said, but, but nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And so even before they saw Jesus, the disciples were saying, is that really what is coming out? Uh, Adam or Andy, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Do I need to do anything up here as far as things go? All right, I'm going to keep trucking as we are. But friends, we believe that Jesus is unique, do we not? And we believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And as a result, everything we view about him matters. Our international uh, missionary president, David Platt, which many of you are familiar with, wrote a book several years ago called Radical. And in this book, Radical, he wrote this very statement that's very apropos to where we're headed today. He said, we American Christians have a way of faking and taking the Jesus of the Bible and making him to something he's not. We have a nice middle-class Jesus. We have a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never have us give anything up. We have a Jesus who's fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. We have a Jesus that wants us to be balanced and find the true meaning in all of life. And then we have a Jesus who brings about comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our spin on the American dream. As I look across, I know this, for many of us, is not truth at all. But as the disciples were, so we are too. As we look at this passage today, I want us to ask ourselves some questions. Why should we think that we are any different if we misunderstand who Jesus is? I mean, for many, we have to ask this question. Is Jesus more your trucker bringing you all the stuff that makes you happy? Or is he your truckload of treasure that makes you happy? Because these disciples are much like many of the people I've quoted. They are going to see Jesus here, but Jesus wants them to go down the straight and go down the narrow. And friends, I want to remind us today that the cross that Christ carried is a guarantee in your life as well. But as the disciples were going to show us, well, well that, Jesus, that's not how we see you. That's not what we want. That's not what we have in mind for you. So therefore, you must be wrong, Jesus, and we must be right. But let it be a reminder today, as the big idea says, that Satan doesn't need us to get rid of the cross. He's simply happy, Satan is, and he's simply content to make you misunderstand it and get bored with it. You see, any honest reading of the text before us is, is, is not just about who Jesus is. It's really about who he's, not, uh, who he's not. And friends, the bottom line is this. Jesus knows you. Jesus trusts you. He asks you to follow him, and he wants you to die for him if necessary. The question is, are we listening? So your view of the cross today, is it worldly? Is it godly? Is it biblical? That's what I want to answer today through two questions, two statements as we go forward. We're going to look at two things in just three verses today. We're going to see that God's ways, when you are trying to carry your cross, are, 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 are hard, but they're not always clear. And God's will is often a challenge, but it is perfect. But what this text is going to show us, and church is so important for us, as we look at our church, as we go out to the neighborhoods, as we reinvent uh, some things in our church to be more glorifying to God, what we are going to do is have to ask the question, 
Is our view of Jesus more in line with culture, or is our view of Jesus more in line with what the Bible says and what he wants us to do? Because for Peter especially, this is going to be a hard, hard lesson. Now, I know you would never say this to someone, but you know the phrase we're getting ready to read, many of you. He goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're not going to die. What's this resurrection thing? And you remember what Jesus told him? Get thee behind me, Satan, and get out of there. I know you've never said that to someone. You have felt like it. It's biblical, but it's in the right context as it is. But what these disciples are going to be challenged with, church, is asking the question, is my view of Jesus in line with Jesus or is in line with whatever it comes to whatever I want it to be? That is what we'll be looking at this morning. If you recall last week, Jesus had just heard from these disciples once again. Peter had made the great confession of faith. They had healed a blind man, Jesus did, with them accompanying And now we get to the point where Jesus is going to talk about what it means to follow him in normal Christian life as they do. If you're able to this morning, will you join me in standing in honor of God's word as we read Mark 8, 31 through 33. Mark 8, 31 to 33 this morning. And this is what it says. And we'll just start in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. It's a short little section, but I pray that we will see as God works through this. Will you pray with me as we go before our Lord this morning? Father, there are many things to to tackle in this text, but I I, I pray, Lord, most of all, especially for our church, and I I thank you that the people in this room, and I know many of the people in this room, this is is what the desire is, is to make you known. So, Father, if if we as individuals, if we as a church, if we uh, as as a congregation ever get ahead of you about what we want to do and not what you would have us do, Lord, Father, may you do as you did to Peter and rebuke us for that. But Father, as we faithfully try to follow you, may you bless the efforts as we go back to the scriptures and see what you say and how that applies and where that takes us. Father, for your glory, we pray that you would be lifted high. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things and for wisdom today in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, you may be seated. Thank you. Well, I want you to focus there on verse 31 and notice, first off, that God's ways are hard but clear. God's ways are hard but clear. And we we noted last week, if you recall, that we are kind of at a tipping point of the book of Mark, not just in chapters and verses, but also in context. The first half of the book of Mark was focused on basically who Jesus is. And he was the king who was coming. And and you remember several, it's been a year and a half ago, it's hard to believe. But a year and a half ago when we started Mark, that he told them to repent and believe the gospel. That was the call. That was the clarion call. And now here in the second half, Jesus is starting to explain what he came to do. And you read there in verse 32 that he's now speaking to them plainly. Where you recall, but in times before, Jesus would speak in parables, and it would go over their heads, and we talked about the spiritual eyes versus the physical eyes. But now it's going to climax. 
This what Jesus came to do when it gets down to the centurion, the Gentile, the very people that Mark is writing to in chapter 15, verse 39, when the centurion says at the cross, truly, this man was the son of God. Sometimes God's ways are hard, but they are clear. And again, let us remind ourselves that they didn't want this. They wanted a king who would do what they wanted him to do. It is, however, not what happened. Jesus begins a new education for them. It's almost like they started elementary school, but they got bumped up to high school just like this one statement. Look back at verse 31 in your Bibles, as you will. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, recall that Jesus, of course, is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel 7. You can read that. We don't have time for sake of time to go there. But he is going to usher in an eternal kingdom over which he will rule as king and as lord. And he will suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed and be risen from the grave three days later. And if I'm a disciple hearing this for the first time, it's almost like when you hear something new. You know, we are on, it's our yearly summer kick. My wife and I are watching The Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Some of y'all know that music. It just gives you the eebie-jeebies just thinking about it. And, you know, you always hear these things. Last night we watched an episode from 1999, this new thing on the market called the Internet. And people were looking, and they were talking about the Internet and how it's going to change the world. And they had no idea, did they, what would really happen. Then we watched one from 2001. They had cell phones with antennas bigger than the one out here, you know, and they were the size of bricks, that sort of thing. When you hear something for the first time, it really changes things. And that is exactly what is happening to these disciples. Jesus tells them, I must suffer. I am being driven to fulfill my Father's plan. And this is a sovereign plan, and it is his plan that I came to do, his will I came to fulfill. And Jesus said, this is not a diversion. This isn't a side tactic. This is the plan, guys. Do you understand? And he tells them this over and over and over again. But friends, let us remind ourselves that this plan came with suffering. It wasn't as if Jesus just walked around and was perfect and never suffered. He did. He never sinned, for sure. But he also suffered because he was in humanity, even though being God. And this God came down because he was rightfully fulfilling his Father's plan, because his Father was angry at sin. And this Father in heaven was angry that the rebellion of his creatures against his holy will, that we had made our own story our own laws instead of his story and his laws, and he came down. But you notice that word there. I don't know if you notice this key word, the phrase, and your Bible should have this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, do you notice that word there? Must, must suffer. That is the must of his love. That is the must of an awesome, glorious love who will not turn his back on his creatures. You can literally spend years just meditating on the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it, guys. No other religion can claim that their God has come down. Yeah, there's Mishnah and all these old things and all these old Greek tragedies or whatever. But at the end of the day, there is no God who has done what Jesus has done. Amen? And you know that. 
And he says, I will redeem you, I will forgive you, I will adopt you, I will give you righteousness, life, I love you. But he must suffer to do it. He must suffer because of who God is, and he must suffer many things. But before we continue, let me just take this home for us as we go. Any kind of suffering with Jesus is better than any kind of prosperity without him. Any suffering that you may face on account of carrying the cross that he calls you to bear daily as a Christian is better than any suffering that could happen outside of him. In the school of being a disciple, growing in Christ, suffering is never an elective course. I loved elective courses in college. If you took those, I took badminton like three times, true story, and I still can't win any game at it. But in the school of suffering, as Jesus experienced, you have to experience this as well. It's a required course. You have to go through it. And when we find evidence of joy in our suffering, we are showing, as Christ did, that we are not here for our treasure, but our treasure is in Jesus Christ. But this God who must suffer is the God who is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He is God Almighty, the Son, the Lamb. He is the one who, when the first Adam failed the test, our, our, our first earthly father, first created man, real literal man, he was the one who would not fail the test, this Jesus. And he will live a righteous life, and every thought, every word, every deed that he did was done perfectly and sinlessly. Please do not buy the bunk that comes out of Hollywood that says, oh, Jesus could have sinned. No, he could not have. That's against his very character. If Jesus sinned, we're in a whole heap of trouble. Go home now. Shoot off some fireworks and have a barbecue and let it be what it is. But it's all about suffering. Jesus suffered for us. I mean, how much more beautiful can this message get? You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said uh, one of his members or church members, however they did that in his days, they were trying to figure all that out. Uh, at the Reformation time, asked him, why do you always preach the gospel to us, Dr. Luther? And you know what he said? Because you're like me. You forget it all the time. And friends, we need this reminder this morning that he must suffer. Jesus must and did once for all. And yes, he suffered torment physically, didn't he? He had the, the, the worst executioners that could ever come taking care of him. But the greatest of his suffering wasn't physical. The greatest of his suffering was what he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could there be any greater torment for the Son of God than to have his Father turn his back? But don't miss this. Jesus was willing to go to the cross. It's not a Mormon Jesus where they have to have some kind of secret handshake and the devil gets one hand and Jesus gets another and they wrestle, as my daddy used to say, to figure out who's going to go die for the sins of the world. No, this Jesus died willingly for us. And as he did, the people who should have worshipped him, who should have recognized him, expected him, who should have bowed at him, plotted to take his life. That's why he says there in verse 31, he must suffer many things. And that, number one, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And number two, be killed. The suffering he did was willing, but they knowingly manufactured an injustice against him because there must have been a death. There had to be a death. It couldn't have been an angel. It couldn't have been anyone else except the thrice holy Son of God. He must die. There is no other way. 
And he was willing, church. He was so willing. May we be reminded that our God gave his all for us. He didn't empty himself and lose divinity, as Philippians 2 talks about. He didn't do that. He still was fully divine and fully human, but in his death, he satisfied the wrath of God. Amen? That is where we stand. But after that, it says he must rise again. He must rise again. And as Adam will put up on the screen, let's not put the resurrection away for another year. I pray that our church's power is not in our strategies, in our schemes. It is founded upon the resurrection. Church, what makes us different? It, what makes us different is not that we have the cool woodwork here from 1962, and I love it. What makes us different is your pastor doesn't have a button on his shirt this morning, whatever. What makes us different is that Jesus rose from the dead. What makes us different is that Buddha, Confucius, Zoroaster, Joseph Smith, Marietta Baker, Muhammad are still in their graves, but our Savior rose again. And that is what we land on. That is what we put our eternity on. Don't put it away for a year. You remember back in Easter, it is always the most well-attended Sunday on any church, mostly in the world. But friends, the power for your marriage, the power for your life, the power for your salvation is found in the resurrection alone. Don't forget that. We have a unique message. We don't need to sweeten it up. We don't need to drop iPads out of helicopters to get people to come. Well, we might if that's what you want to do. But the reason that people come, I pray, is because they see, hear, and believe a difference in our lives, and that is that Jesus died. He was buried, and he rose again. That is the difference. What separates us from every other religion, as you know, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But don't think of it this way, except that the cross was not just a defeat. It wasn't a deflate. The cross was victory. The cross was victory. And the resurrection was the icing on the cake, the gravy on the side, if that's what you want to say. But whatever you get, the cross is triumphed. And because of the cross, sin is defeated. God's wrath is satisfied. The purchase is done. Righteousness is, is given to us. The sacrifice is made, and death is gone forever. And so in the resurrection, Jesus conquers death that he may offer to us life. Not just eternal life to come, but life now because sin has been put away. And we walk in the newness of life. If you're a Christian here today and you struggle with your identity about who you are, never forget you are in God's sight, a son or daughter of God, living not in the power of a Dr. Phil, an Oprah, or Ellen, or whatever else, but you live in the power of the resurrected Son of God. How do we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against Tower View Baptist Church or any other like-minded church or the universal church because the Son of God reigns from heaven and He does whatever He pleases? How do we know that when our culture around us is decaying faster than some person's teeth who eat sugar all the time, that we are going to be victorious, not in a nationalistic pride, but as a church, because the resurrection of the Son of God has happened? It's a gorgeous plan, isn't it? It's an awesome plan. And friends, I want to remind you about this, that the cross, the resurrection, it defines you. You are now known as a cross-bearer, a little Christ, as they were first called at Antioch, as Acts tells us. You are now a cross-bearer. It defines you. 
It should define you. It should define us. It should define everything that we do. This cross here is everything, isn't it? The cross defines, if you will, not only your salvation, it defines your need, that only in Jesus can you be saved. It defines who you are. It defines what you will become. It defines how you live this life now. It defines everything. That is our faith. It brings together the deepest sadness with the highest celebration, and it brings the most humbling message and brings it up to us who deserve the worst, the wrath of God, and it says you have now been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Amen? Church, that's what it's all about. And we have a lot to celebrate in this country, and I I praise God for everything, but never forget the greatest celebration we have is not happening every 4th of July. The greatest celebration you have is that when you wake up in the morning, you can face the day because Jesus has already conquered the day once and for all and has paved the way for you. That's what you have. Doesn't mean you're not going to be without potholes. You've driven around Kansas City enough, you know better than that. But it does mean that as Christ has given you, you have within you by the Spirit of God living inside you the power, as Peter says, to live through life and through godliness all that you have and all that you need because of Christ. Now I want you to remember that that is what this says. Jesus says after three days he would rise again. Now we look at each other and we say, yes, that is the gospel message. But if you're hearing this for the first time, your ears are going to go a very, very different way. Look secondly here that God, first, God's ways are often hard but clear, but I want you to see what the disciples do here. Secondly, God's will is often a challenge but perfect. God's will is often a challenge but perfect. Now, Peter was on board with Jesus as the Christ, right? Yeah, Jesus, you got this man. Go get him. Woo! Let it be. But Jesus, I'm not on board with what you just said. I mean, look at this. Look at what it says in verse 32. And he said this plainly. Parents, sometimes you talk in code. Come on. Or grandparents, you know how this is. They're going to go to B-E-D. Yeah, that's bed. That's right. Yeah, we're going to E-A-T-O-U-T because this food isn't good, but they have to eat it, but we're not going to eat it. You know how this goes. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He speaks plainly. That Greek word means exactly what it says. He's speaking to them in a way as God's Spirit has opened their spiritual ears to understand. This isn't rocket science. Peter gets it, but he doesn't want it. So he calls him out. And that was a bad call on Peter's part. At the height of this glorious teaching, at the height of just a few uh, scenes ago, he's giving the, the great confession, you are the son of the living God. You notice what Peter does. Because you would do this too, right? Someone is out of line. What do you do? Say, hey, 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 can I talk to you? You know, over here. Let's, let's go have a private word. Can I have a word with you? And he does that. So it says Peter took him aside. I mean, can you just imagine the scene? Hey, hey, Jesus, can we have a talk? You need an intervention, Jesus. I mean, I mean really. I, I, Peter's offended. He's perplexed. He's amazed. But, Lord, you can't die. You cannot die. That's not how this is supposed to work out. I've read chapter 7, and that's not chapter 7. You're, 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 you're off on your own little venture here, Jesus. You must not go through this rejection. And what is this resurrection? Come on now. What is this? And Jesus understood that although Peter understood his words, Peter did not get the gospel. Do you remember that last week? We talked about it. Look back at verse 30. 
You remember last week, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, Jesus, if you're a PR person, that's dumb. You want all the free word of mouth you can get. Remember, we said they didn't want him sharing about him because they really didn't understand the gospel. And it shows right here. But Peter was not alone. Did you notice that? Peter's a spokesperson. But not only that, he's the one who they are going to to ask the question. And he goes to all the different things that are here. And what happens is, is that Peter goes to these people and on their behalf begins to speak and rebuke Jesus. And here's what is said. Peter says that Jesus is just isn't right. He just isn't right. And the disciples go with him. I want you to understand something right out of the gate here as Adam goes on. I think it's already up there. But when you misunderstand God's agenda, you tend to end up doubting his character. But God, if you would just do this, I would be happy. God, if you would just do it my way. I mean, God, I went to d- school for this. I mean, I, I mean, you don't know the economics, God, or you don't understand this. But friends, circumstances don't determine God's plan. God's plan determines circumstances. Do you understand that? If, if you could determine what happened to your faith all the time, you would live in a mansion so pretty with all the great stuff that you want. There'd never be any hardship. You'd have your favorite food all day. People would rub your feet. They'd shine your shoes. They'd clean your floors. And whatever else you find good in this life that you don't want to do, and I don't want to do, that's not what Jesus says here. God's plan for you is very different from what you have planned for yourself. God's plan is wise. He has a plan to follow. And our job is to joyfully follow it wherever we are called. And notice what Jesus says here. He says, get behind me. Who? Peter? Satan. Yeah. This is Diablos. This is the the main thing. Jesus treats Peter like he was Satan, a a demon-possessed man. It's harsh, but it's justified. It's necessary. And like Satan at the temptation of the wilderness, Peter offers him a crown without a cross. He offers him the easy way out without giving all that God has called him to do. And so Jesus made sure his rebuke was witnessed by all the disciples. Look back there. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but you are setting your mind on things of man. Jesus just said, this is God's plan. And Peter says, no, 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 this can't be right. But what we know, like so many today, is that Peter wants a Jesus that fits his agenda. He wants a Jesus on his own terms. He wants a Messiah that does what he wants him to do when he wants him to do it. Often, like a lot of parents treat their kids, they didn't get to do something, they weren't good at something, so we're going to pour all our money, all our investment, all our time, skip church, skip, skip any instruction in the Lord, because this person has to be the best at fill in the blank. And this Jesus that Peter had in his head was not what he wanted. And he just says, forget God's plan. Forget that you have to die. Forget that you're marching towards a true cross. Just stop it, Jesus. I mean, stop it. Don't you see, Jesus? There can't be a cross. Who is this? But Peter tells him very clearly, Jesus tells Peter very clearly, that without the cross, there's nothing else that comes to bear. I'm going to say a very strong statement. It's up there in the middle. But anyone who ever presents acceptance with God, forgiveness, righteousness, but does not require a cross, is doing the work of Satan. 
If you ever listen to preachers who don't demand anything out of you that God demands through the Word of God, then run away from that preacher faster than you turned on the channel probably to watch him or supposedly her. That is a strong statement. I understand that it is. But church, we live in a time where in the name of Jesus, people do a lot of things, don't they? In the name of Jesus, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do that. But if there's never a cross to bear, there's not any truth behind the message. Now, I, 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 truth in the sense that they might have speckles of truth. Isn't that how Satan gets you in? He gets you in with just a little bit of truth, a little bit of falsehood, and a lot of truth, and he gets you hook, line, and sinker. Churches, we go forward as a church. This is a good word for us as well. Because the, the scriptures that we look at, the, the plans that we make, everything that we do goes back to this question. Do we have a Jesus in our own image? Jesus is not Russian. Jesus is not American. Jesus is not Brazilian. Jesus is not, and I, my favorite World Cup team already is out, Icelandic. Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is not defined by nationality. Jesus is the creator of all nationalities. Everything came from him, Colossians 1 tells us. But like Peter as a church, sometimes we're going to get confronted with issues where we want to say, no, God, that's not what, no, that's not the right plan. And we have to be rebuked by the word of God and accept it and say, God, whatever your word says is greater than whatever my feelings, whatever my thoughts are, whatever my heart's desire may be for this church, the the, the situation. Lord, if your word speaks, let it speak. And church, we have to be okay with that. And there are times as, as pastor, especially as I look at this passage, it makes me tremble to be very transparent with you because there are times when I think, are we going the right direction? Are we doing the right thing? Are we teaching the right stuff? Are we doing this and doing that? That even as Peter had the best intentions, that we can so easily get off the path. Would you pray for wisdom for our church? Would you pray for wisdom for our teachers of the church? For Pastor Nelson, Pastor Gilbert, for all the leaders in this church, all Sunday school teachers, our deacons, our ladies' ministry, our men's ministry, that as we study, as we grow together, that we don't miss who Jesus is because we want to see something done this way. I hope that makes sense. But you notice it's a very, very strong rebuke that he receives. And this is a rebuke that comes. But I am very concerned, church, our greatest needs our greatest things are a Christianity that says you do not need a cross. That's utter baloney. If you are a Christian, you will be known not by the jewelry you wear, but by the cross, symbolically as it is, that you bear in the name of Jesus Christ. We must not dilute the message. We must not back away from the message. But we must remember That human beings don't need to be tweaked. A poor sentence on Facebook needs to be tweaked. We are humans that need to be fundamentally rebuilt. And only Jesus can do that. I don't need a few nudges of grace. I need a radical rescue, radical forgiveness and power. And I'm in deep danger to me apart from grace. But that is where the gospel comes in. But friend... Is the Jesus you worship here on Sunday morning in your heart, as our church, in my heart, is it the Christ of the cross or is it the cross of something else, the Christ of something else? That is the big prayer. Remember, Peter had the best intentions. Jesus, you got this. You don't understand. 
But that is the prayer. Lord, are my thoughts, my mind, are they set on your things or are they set on my things? God, as we look at our church, are we set on your things or are we set on our things? Lord, do we want this because that's what that other church does? Lord, do we want this because that's what this teacher does? Do we want this because of fill in the blank? That's a hard cross to bear. Because, friends, we go no farther than this. Amen? The Scripture says that we follow it as best we can. Now, what about those gray areas? Should you have hot dogs after church, Pastor? I don't see a chapter and a verse for that. Well, if you eat a hot dog, you might not live long after that anyway. So let it be what it is. But for the, but the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. It's sufficient. Friends, they understood a part of the gospel. They understood a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But look, if our church ever gets bored with the cross, then we no longer have a church. We have just a gathering of social people. Friends, may we never lose the power of the cross. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians, for the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let our church be known not by what we give out, not by what we do, but by the power for which we have been saved. And if that is what our church is known for, then we can walk out of here knowing that we have done everything God has asked us to do. I pray as I look across this room and so many faithful people that as we go forward as a church, as you go forward as families, that you take that to heart. Whatever you want, God, let it be. But if you're here today and in the preaching of the gospel, you're, you're thinking, golly, that hot dog sounds good right about now. Check your heart, would you? I'm serious. Because if our heart is so set, if, if every time you hear the gospel, I hear the gospel, we collectively, corporately hear the gospel, and it just sounds like, oh, there he goes again about that gospel, then friends, our heart needs a little in it, doesn't it? Because the gospel is the greatest treasure we have. Look, you don't have a cool preacher, kind of got a cool one in Nelson, you definitely got one in Gilbert, but the coolness isn't the factor we're here about, is it? It's about sanctification, it's about growth, it's about seeing people coming to Christ. With that in mind, will you pray with me as we close out? I just want to pray that as we think about our church, as we think about our future, that we really consider that Satan would have us be bored with the cross. And friends, may we never be bored with the cross. Father, I do pray as we close out today, a little different manner than usual, Father, that, that our church would, would, as we come to worship together, it's about remembering what you've done on Calvary. As we come together and we, we pray, it's about remembering what your son has done, all that he had to do. Father, as we fellowship together, I pray that the gospel would be at the center of conversation. Lord, that, that this week, as, as terrible as it's been, that once again, the power, the forgiveness of Christ has saved us from a, a many faults, not without consequence, but many faults. Father, as we, as we plan that we keep the cross and how to impact our neighborhood, not just with good deeds, but I pray those accompany the message, Lord, for sure. But I pray that how the cross can be the greatest treasure, this, this neighborhood of Gracemore behind us, uh, or across the street, Maple Park behind us has. Father, I pray for families today that as we consider our children and our grandchildren, that it's not the, the greatest treasure we leave them is a, is, is a desire to, to run hard after 
your son and all he's done and go to the ends of the world if necessary to share that, even if that means they skip out of the American dream and they do things that are not different. Father, if, if that's what you call them to do, may that be our greatest heritage to them. Father, I pray for our, our sister churches in our association around that we pray for every week from the pulpit. I, I pray that the gospel would be the center of all that they do. Father, we may not understand all that you're doing just as Peter didn't understand and the disciples didn't understand, but Father, I pray you give us the strength, the trust, even when we can't see what's ahead. May your word truly be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, one step at a time, one day at a time. But Father, thank you that you've already won the victory, all by grace, through your super intending of this universe, we thank you for it. Father, we pray these things and ask them today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.